It's that time again for us to open up the Word of God and to dive in to uh, see what gems the Lord has for us to to learn and and to live by this morning. I'm very excited. We've reached a another important aspect or part, rather, a section of the Book of Hebrews. It's in a, a section where the writer admonishes. Uh, his audience, and he does this a number of times throughout the book, and it's really a, a time where he kind of puts the brakes on everything, and then on the basis of what he's said, makes an admonition and calls us, um, us uh, as well as the Jewish, first century Jewish Christians, uh, us by extension, uh, to action. So I'm excited to, to get into this with you. I titled our message, Grow Up, and no doubt you've looked at that and thought, oh, that's that's kind of bold, isn't it? You know, grow up. We, we usually hear that term uttered uh, in contexts where somebody's frustrated with you or somebody else or where somebody is carrying on in an immature, immature fashion and they're told to grow up. Maybe there have been several attempts to be kind about conveying the importance of becoming mature and then the person has reached the end of his line and uh, basically just tells it like it is. Um, but I don't want you to get the impression that some kind of a, an expression like this, or this itself, grow up, has to necessarily be a, um, a negative thing. Uh, it does have a, a sound of rebuke, but rebuke obviously is a helpful thing if it's done right. And, and it does show the author or the writer to the Hebrews his love for the people that he calls their attention uh, to. So... Uh, One thing that is detrimental to the Christian life and the life of the local church is spiritual complacency. There's no question about it. Never advancing, never growing, never maturing. Uh, The church can have a grand building, all the trappings that go with it, a good location, a big budget that comes with a large body of people, state-of-the-art sound equipment, skilled musicians, cushioned seats, of course. Lots of missionaries that receive its support, but but if no one is maturing, then these forms and functions are empty and they go nowhere. I would say that Satan would like nothing more than to see all God's soldiers in spiritual diapers sucking their spiritual thumbs and not reaching a functioning level of maturity. The only thing more tragic than this is when immature Christians are unaware of their complacency, thinking that they're doing just fine. They're really busy, very busy, about the wrong things in life. I I think that sums up American Christianity. And sadly, many true churches are getting sucked into this. So it's time, really, for the church to grow up. The Apostle Paul gave such a clarion call to the church at Ephesus. And in chapter 4... He gives what, as I say, may sound harsh, but it really was the loving thing for him to do. He shows in this call a connection between such an admonition and such a love. This is what he says, verses 14 and 15. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. The implication, I don't know if you you missed it, is that people are speaking to each other in love 
about the importance of growing up, and that's exactly what he does. And that's exactly what the writer to the Hebrews is going to do in our text this morning. Now, just to give you an idea of where we're we're at, I'll give you a lay of the land, uh, where we are in the the, the layout of the book. We've begun what's really the central part of this letter, the the writer's exposition of Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood. And before he dives into it, he takes the opportunity to bring yet another admonition, and of course more will come, And this particular admonition runs from chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 20. It's got three sections to it. The first section, 5, 11 to 6, 3, is his plea to move toward maturity. And then in 6, 3 to to verse 8, it is his severe warning not to fall away. And then in 6, 9 to the end, verse 20, it is his call to endure uh, uh, the faith, because God is faithful. Three sections to this very important admonition. So we concern ourselves with the first part of this, chapter 5, verse 11, to 6, verse 3, where the writer pleads with his congregation to move toward, e- toward e- uh, maturity. Now, I've, I've published the outline for you, a kind of loose outline for you in the bulletin, so that you can kind of get an idea of how we're approaching this. The main idea is very simple. Let's not be spiritually complacent, but rather push forward into maturity with God's help. That's the main idea. So, with that in mind, we look at the first part of this, and that is, let's not be spiritually complacent. Let's not be spiritually complacent. Complacency stunts our spiritual growth. The writer has much to tell this congregation concerning Melchizedek, and as we pointed out last time, the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus is central to the book. It's central to the writer's argument. It is far superior to the Aaronic priesthood and has a tremendous bearing on the Christian life. But explaining this to his congregation is not going to be easy. He says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain since you have become poor listeners. Huh. Poor listeners. What's the problem? Well, it's obvious that the writer has some inside information on his congregation, and it's this. They had become sluggish in their listening. They had become bad Bible students, if you will. If they even had a study regimen, it was rough, in rough shape. You see, they... They had let their study habits go far too long, and as a result, they weren't far enough along intellectually in order to grasp important theological truth. You could say that they really were still infantile in their faith, still baby Christians when it comes to Bible knowledge and Bible application. The writer knows this, and that he has his work cut out for him in explaining a deeper aspect of the truth of Christ's death and Um, ministry as high priest in chapter 7 to 9. We'll see that when we get there. Now look at verse 11 and let uh, let me show you the phrase, you have become lazy. Do you see that? You have become lazy. Now that doesn't translate one single Greek word as you might expect, but rather two. And hopefully they're obvious. The first is lazy. And in this context it means mentally lazy, sluggish in one's thought process. Now, the second word is the common verb to be, 
And it's in what we call a perfect tense. That has to do with like past action with ongoing results. He says, you have become. And that indicates that they weren't always this way, right? They weren't always this way. They became this way. They became sluggish in their thought process. Now, you might be thinking, well, well, maybe they have some medical condition or medical disorder. Yes, and that's what most people tend to think when they hear that someone has some kind of learning disability. I'm putting disability in quotations. But there are at least three reasons why this bunch did not suffer from a disorder, but very much were responsible for their condition. For one thing, all or most of them seem to have this laziness about them. Now, it would be unlikely that they would all come down with the same disorder at the same time. Are we to think that there was perhaps something in the drinking water? Or perhaps they were, they were living in a particular area that emitted high levels of radon gas that kind of messed with their, their thought process. Anyone for bad dates? Another thing is the writer rebukes them here, which makes no sense if they had a medical condition that was beyond their control, right? Would you, would you rebuke somebody who was displaying characteristics of cancer? No. Oh, we would add to this that in just a few verses on, he will urge them to press on to maturity, which indicates very clearly that they can and they must. Oh, finally, we we see that even the major English versions put the blame on the person as well. The NIV, I think, is a good representative here. Uh, it's got it right, quote, you no longer try to understand, end quote. Okay, so it is surely a tragic thing when Christians allow themselves to get to this point. How does it happen? Well, there are many variables, I think, at work that we cannot possibly account for here, but the bottom line answer is that they simply didn't apply themselves. They didn't apply themselves. They didn't make an effort to learn. They stopped reading. They stopped studying. Stopped applying apostolic truth. Now, granted, these church folks didn't own their own copy of the Old Testament. They couldn't just consult a study Bible complete with maps and illustrations. The complete New Testament had been written yet. There were only a few letters circulating around the churches at this time, a few of Paul's to be sure. So can the writer blame them? Is he being a bit harsh, perhaps, too harsh with them? Well, we would say no. No. No, because there is every indication in the entire New Testament, especially the epistles, that Christians had access to good teaching and were able to study whatever portions of the Bible had been in circulation. Peter talks about Paul's letters being hard to understand and those who distort them for their own benefit, actually to their own destruction. The church had elders who had been able, who had to be able to teach uh, their congregation's apostolic truth, 2 Timothy 4.2. And later in Hebrews chapter 13, this writer exhorts them to listen to those elders in their own congregation whose job it is to teach them the word of God. Something else that's important, the writer also uh, implores them in chapter 13 to imitate the faith of those who teach apostolic truth or did. Most likely these are uh, leaders that have died. This would be another way to learn not only the meaning of Jesus' teaching, but also how to apply it in real-life context. Find somebody who's mature and imitate his faith or imitate her faith, as the case may be. Learning the faith by having others model it 
almost as an apprenticeship, teaches the Christian to recognize error and keep away from it. Here's chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Most likely these leaders are deceased. Consider the outcome of, the way of, of their way of life and imitate their faith. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. See the connection? You've got strange teachings that could lead you astray. But if you're imitating the faith of those who are, who are solid and who are mature, then it's less likely for that to happen because they show you the way. It's noteworthy that this small bit of text, by the way, begins with the command to remember. Remember. Remembering is a mental activity that's very much an, an active thing, unlike forgetting, which is very much a passive activity. What do I mean by that? Well, you don't have to work at forgetting, do you? It just is a natural result of not applying yourself to remembering. Out of sight, out of mind. Isn't that what we say? If God's word is not constantly before you in some form or fashion, if you're not getting a steady diet of scripture, even in small amounts to chew on and apply every single day, then you will eventually forget it because that's how we're designed. We're creatures of habit. We need constant rehearsing, constant recounting, constant application, or else it's gone. This happens. I feed 11 horses every day. 11. Sometimes it's 15 on a, good, on a good season. Not one horse, not one of the 11 receives the same mixture of feed. The number of scoops of each supplement all depends on the horse's need, a particular horse. Does it need to gain weight? Does it need to lose weight? Is it insulin resistant, which means is it diabetic? Some also get varying scoops of, of fats along with their vitamins and supplements. Again, not all the same. Now, if that's not complicated enough, some horses actually receive additional supplements per order of the owner. One is a hoof strengthener. Another takes glucosamine and chondroitin for joints. Some are on powdered forms of antibiotics and receive it in mash form before their regular diet of vitamins and supplements. We have, we have stuff for old horses, young horses, and horses in between. As complicated as all that sounds, I can fill each horse's container for the next meal in less than five minutes, all 11. And that's because I do it twice a day, every day. It's second nature now. Now, we have volunteers who are with us, and if they're with us long enough, they have to learn this. They consult a whiteboard, and they follow the instructions, and it takes them roughly 20 to 30 minutes to do what I can do in five. But week after week, they get to know who's who and who gets what and can cut their prep time in half. That's the benefit of habit. If we weren't creatures of habit, some of you would be sitting here with toothpaste running down your mouth because you forgot to spit, and others would have your underwear on the outside of your pants instead of on the inside because you forgot the, the combination. Now, if I stepped away from this for a year and I came back to my horse feeding, I probably would have to refresh my memory at some of the details because I would be out of practice. I think you can relate to what I'm saying because it happens in every, in every part of life. Learning to speak a foreign language requires constant review. If you don't keep up with it, you'll forget it. You know, it's actually the testimony of many immigrants who came to this country back in the 20s and 30s and had learned English. 
that they had forgotten a good deal of their first language because for years they were not in context where they had to speak it. And I know you're thinking, well, how can that possibly happen? I would never forget to speak English or how to speak English. Well, you would be surprised at how much you would lose when you don't use it. If you don't use it, you lose it. Now, remembering, unlike forgetting, is active. You have to do something to remember important information. You have pill boxes with seven compartments, one for each day of the week. And you fill, it, you fill each one with important medication and vitamins, perhaps, to remind you to take your special dosage for the day. Do you ever forget to take your medicine? Or maybe weren't sure if you had? Now you're afraid of taking too much. Well, if Monday is gone, if it's empty, then you know you've taken your medicine. See how that works? That's a good help, isn't it? You write down appointments in your diary, and then you review it the night before so that you will be sure to keep them. I run a ranch with livestock. To run it successfully, I have to feed, exercise, groom the horses, clean their lot daily, every day of the week. We shouldn't think that carrying out the faith is any different than carrying out important routines. It isn't. In fact, it's really the most important activity of all. The faith is our life. Jesus is our life. That's what Paul said. And his word is the lifeblood of the saints. The only way that you know the Lord better, more intimately, and think his thoughts after him is to acquire a good handle on his truth. Yet so many Christians are ill-equipped to live the faith because they don't understand their own doctrine. And that's because their study habits are practically non-existent. You know, the habits of the godly in church history have always been to study and apply scripture, always. You would see, going all the way back to the Old Testament and all the way up to the present, that has been the habit of the champions of old. You need only to read the Psalms to see that's true. They're rife with references to consulting God's word, meditating on it day and night, in the night watches, in my bed as I lay there, he goes on to say. Your word I have treasured in my heart so that I may not sin against you. How do you like that? And every new king in Israel, according to Deuteronomy 17, get this, was, quote, this is verse 18, to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law pertaining to kings. God's word would be the king's foundation for rule. They had to write it out in their own hand, a copy to keep with them. Throughout the early chapters in Deuteronomy, God tells Israel to be careful to keep his statutes and not to forget him. You shall therefore impress these words of mine in your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as signs on your hand, and they shall become as frontals on your forehead. When we get to the New Testament, we're not surprised that the same kind of behavior continues. Luke's account of the early church is this, continually devoting themselves to the apostolic teaching. Peter commands us to study to show ourselves approved. The Lord's Supper, we just had it. It is an act of remembering, and the act of remembering is a, is a reenactment so that we might not forget the significance of the death of Christ. Oh, there's much in our lives that can deter us from remembering God's Word in, in this proactive way of constant study, constant application. For example... 
The anti-intellectualism that I think characterizes American Christianity and the church growth movement has, has really um, nurtured and cultivated for a long time. Studying the Bible, becoming a good theologian, knowing its doctrines are not where, it at, where it's at at all because they bought into the idea that somehow all that laborious and tedious work is not spiritual enough. It's not mystical enough. It's, it's not sensational enough. We have to be in tune with the Spirit, you see. Listen to His voice. Feel His promptings and be moved in our spirit intuitively by Him. And for that to happen, our minds need to be free and unhindered by the details of some dry ancient text that we have to mine through Bible study. Modern church finds it too consuming, too difficult, too restricting, and too boring. Some of us can see through this as a way of churches to satisfy an agenda that is less than God-honoring. They, pa- they pander to the majority of churchgoers and they offer a faith that, that they can define for themselves. Also, it doesn't help that this kind of thinking gets promoted actually by seminaries and, and top theologians, or famous ones I should say, as it has been by classic dispensationalism. I don't know really how many people hold to classic dispensationalism dispensationalism anymore, although many many may uh, in practice to, to some degree. But the proponents of this approach to the Bible uh, make a solid distinction between believers and disciples and believe that it is possible then for a person to be saved and always remain just a believer, never growing, never producing fruit, and until he, by his own volition, decides at some point to then become a disciple. It's a very dangerous doctrine. It's a false doctrine. There's also the influence of cults and sects, even odd brands of Christianity that are way off the orthodox mark, that are clever in indoctrinating Christians, doing the work for them, but misleading them nevertheless. And we see, the, see this in the case of these Jewish Christians of the first century who were enamored with the Essene community. Remember? There's also a fair bit of misunderstanding among Christians, too. I think this is another variable that deters from a, 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 a growing, active remembering. In light of all these examples of preventatives to self-motivated Bible study, we're not really surprised that there would be misunderstanding. Some Christians think that that simply being in the church for years and years and years makes a spiritual saint when all it simply does is grounds them in whatever error the church happens to be promoting all the more, especially if the church doesn't do ministry correctly. I remember hearing this when I was a young pastor. Men in their 60s and 70s that I serve with who were, I guess, somebody in the local church at one point in time, would say, well, you know, I've been a Christian longer than you've been alive. Or I've held an office in this church for most of my Christian life. You know, I have to say that never meant anything to me at all, much to their shock. It simply told me that they've had a good long time in doing the wrong things, as well as cultivating bad habits, which are very hard to break. That's what that meant to me 
Whatever the excuses of these first century Jewish Christians are, the writer, well, he'll have none of it. None of it whatsoever. Grow up is what he means here. Maturity is a responsibility of all believers, and when it's not taking place, the writer calls them on it. In essence, he says, you need to get with it. Grow up in your maturity. So how bad was their state of immaturity? How bad was it? Well, it was pretty bad. No doubt worse than they could ever have imagined. Look at verse 12. Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have again need for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the actual words of God. Wow. That's a, that's a, a pretty bold statement. This is one of those frustrating verses where the writer and his audience know something we don't. And that is how long these believers have been saved. Now, it's really not that important, or else I think the Holy Spirit would have told us that. But what is important is whatever that time period was, it was long enough for them to have reached a a demonstrable level of maturity, specifically discipling others. His reference to teachers, of course, is not a, a formal is not in the formal sense of a university professor, but rather as a mentor. Those who can come alongside new believers and disciple them, or alongside unbelievers in carrying on an ongoing dialogue about the faith. Apparently, they were not even able to do that. And the sad fact is that they themselves needed instruction. They needed, embarrassingly, to be discipled in the elementary principles of the actual Word of God. The evidence of their laziness is stunted spiritual growth. Now, let me break this down for you. The elementary principles are the fundamentals of the faith. We're going to look at them in just a moment. Basic teachings, the standard Greek lexicon, by the way, refers to the fundamentals here as equivalent to learning our ABCs, or in this case, the ABCs of the faith. That's where they were stumbling. The writer illustrates just... How, uh, just uh, the, the, the condition, how bad the condition of their immaturity was when he says, you have, you have come to need milk, not solid food. Uh, there were baby Christians in their knowledge of Scripture and in their ability to apply it. He goes on in verse, the rest of that verse and a little bit of verse 14 to explain that everyone who partakes of milk is unacquainted with the word of righteousness, for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature. It's an illustration that certainly communicates even today, doesn't it? Because of the universal facts of raising children. Most people know, even if they've never had children, that newborns need milk to grow developmentally to the next level of maturity, right? They need milk. In fact, uh, at this stage, you don't feed them solids because They're not ready for it. Their digestive systems are not able to handle it. According to Cleveland Clinic Pediatrics, solid foods, quote, have a lower nutritional value than breast milk or formula and higher in calories, which can contribute to childhood obesity. They're also harder to swallow if the baby is not developed enough. They may may increase the risk of health problems such as allergies, eczema, and possibly be linked to chronic diseases like diabetes and celiac disease. Of course, it is also important to start them on solids as soon as they can and are developmentally ready. Now, in what way does this information or this illustration 
help us to understand the importance of a, a right diet of Scripture on a spiritual level. Does it? Well, yes, it does. Baby Christians, and by that I mean not just new converts, but those veteran churchgoers that I spoke about a moment ago who are still infantile in their faith and knowledge and use, and use of Scripture, baby Christians need the milk of the Word. That is a steady diet of basics, of the fundamental truths, the foundation aspects of the faith in small amounts. They grow by this. Giving new believers meatier versions of the same doctrines can actually be counterproductive for their growth. Do you remember Jesus told his disciples on one occasion, I have much to tell you, but you cannot endure it now. Hmm. We wind up only confusing new converts and even discouraging them if we give them too much too soon. Now make no mistake, baby Christians who are on milk are unacquainted with the word of righteousness. That's what it says, verse 14, unacquainted. Unacquainted, it means inexperienced or unskilled in the use of God's word to confront and solve your problems. A baby Christian knows no more about applying biblical truth and matters of life than a toddler does about how to live on his own. If you give a toddler his own bank account, a car, well-paying job in his own house, and said, now there you go, Johnny, here's what you need to get started in life, go to it, lad, uh, he won't get very far, would he? He lacks both the knowledge and the wisdom about adult living. And baby Christians lack biblical knowledge and much less how to apply that knowledge to the Christian life. Mature Christians, on the other hand, well, they're on a steady diet of, a meteor, of the meteor aspects of doctrine. And please notice, what makes them mature and keeps them mature is not just that they have a greater apprehension of biblical truth on a deeper level, but they put it to use. They know how to handle their own sin, where to go when they're guilty, how to manage themselves in crisis situations. They become adept at killing off the lusts of the flesh, testing the spirits out to see if, they're, uh, if they might bring some false or damning teaching in the name of Christianity. And verse 14 tells us basically how mature Christians become mature. In the first place, they practice the faith. you see that word? Practice. Mature Christian living is not voluntary. It doesn't take place by itself. You have to make it happen. It's your responsibility to grow. Paul, Paul's command in 1 Timothy 4.7 4, is very simple. Train yourself to be godly. Why is that? Because godliness does not come easy. That's why. The writer talks of practice. Growing up in our faith and becoming a strong Christian. It involves practice. It involves training. Now, training, like Bible study, is also not very popular in the church today, sadly, and I think it's because the atmosphere that people are saved out of is very much anti-training. This is no more pronounced, I think, than in, than in the maintaining of our own bodies in America. I'm talking generally now about Americans and health, fitness, their bodies, now, that might sound strange since the North American fitness movement started back in the 70s and, and hit its full craze status in the 80s. 
remains a popular and lucrative business as ever today. According to the Oxford Companion to United States History, quote, these years, that is the 80s, saw a great increase of cycling and jogging, exercising at health clubs, and even marathoning, which was sponsored by hundreds of cities. Entries in the New York City Marathon rose from 126 in 1972 to 20,000 in the mid-80s, But the fact that our country still leads the world in obesity ought to tell you that people's concepts of working out is not quite right. But that's just where the fitness industry wants it and wants you. Don't be fooled by the snappy and stylish outfits of CrossFit trainers or the smorgasbord of Zumba, spin, and hot yoga classes. It's just another social venue for meeting people and feeling good about yourselves. It has nothing to do with training. Gyms for the average American are bright and cheery and and want to present a comfortable and stress-free environment where you won't feel intimidated by the Adonises. You know the type, sculptured, tight abs, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. The good news for Joan and Joe Fitness is that they'll find very few serious weightlifters like these in their stylish and commercialized gyms. Take a breather. In fact, most of these facilities have banished the Herculean types from their premises or, or made it extremely difficult for them to use the equipment. Well, why is that, you might wonder? Because serious weightlifters are bad for the fitness business. That's why. Huh? Well, their very appearance, if not their impressive lifting regimen, discourages those that, 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 that these gyms are trying to attract. The power lifters and the serious guys, well, they just don't look the part. And they smell. <laughs> they don't wear bright and cheery color-coordinated gym suits. Or they don't have matching headbands and weight and wristbands. They, They wear sweatpants with holes in them and shirts with strange slogans on them that say, go heavy or go home. Or intimidating, cartoonish, muscle-bound figures eating wimpy guys. They also do other things that are bad for fitness business, like breathe, especially exhale, and worst of all, sweat. There is to be absolutely no sweating in the gym or grunting for that matter, or banging weights together, as is inevitable with serious weightlifting. You ought to know that Planet Fitness has installed a lunk alarm. A lunk alarm. What is that? It's a siren with flashing blue lights that goes off whenever someone grunts or clangs weights too loudly. I kid you not, it is meant to humiliate the perpetrator. And if you're serious about working out for better health, don't come to the gym. You're not welcome there. Stay home. If you do come, no clothes with holes in them, no grunting, no breathing, definitely no sweating, and no noise making. Got it? Now, as comical as this is, and there's more truth to this than I'm letting on, it makes very, a very poignant point. You, you can be involved in fitness without being involved. You can train your body, and training your body doesn't have to be noisy, sweaty, smelly, or ugly. 
It need not involve stress or pain. I've no doubt that gyms now are inviting their members to weightlift in Zoom meetings since the pandemic. You tune in in the comfort of your own home, sit back in your Barca lounger with your favorite drink and watch someone lift. It gets the same results. So you pay lots of money to the fitness industry for the appearance of fitness, and the only pain you feel is in your wallet, and your pain is, of course, their gain. Beloved, real training is not pretty. It is not meant to be. It is not easy. It is not appealing. It is mentally demanding, physically taxing. It is meant to stress you. It is not pleasant at the time, but it's hard work. It's intense. It burns. Serious weightlifters go to failure. You leave worn out, sore, and you feel even worse the next couple of days. You interested? In a few short weeks, however, you start to feel and see positive results. You can't achieve this level of growth any other way, not by drinking a tonic, not by swallowing a pill, not by wearing a patch. The maintenance of that piece of property that God has given you called your body is by pure sweat equity. Athletes know this, military personnel know this, and animal trainers know this. Scriptural training is no different. Paul likens it, in fact, to the arduous training of those in ancient Greece who entered the Olympic Games. Spiritual training taxes our minds more than our bodies. It calls for mental acuity, sharp thinking. You need to absorb spiritual truth, which doesn't happen overnight. And it's more than just memorizing verses. You need to study the doctrines of the faith, know what you believe and why, where you find your defense for what you believe, develop a sound epistemology. That is how you can know what you know to be true. Is it wrong for a Christian to live together with another of the opposite sex outside of marriage? How do you know? There are many Christians who do it with a clear conscience. Does that make it right? Should a Christian marry outside the faith or cheat on his taxes? How do you know? And how do you handle crisis? Would you know how to stop the mouth of a gossiper, when to commit civil disobedience, how to rebuke another Christian or discipline someone who knows, I'm sorry, disciple someone who knows less than you? How do you determine God's will in those areas of life that the Bible doesn't address directly in commands? The practice that the writer is talking about is the studying and learning the content of God's word and then putting it to use in everyday life, wielding the sword of the Spirit. And the more you practice, the better you get at it. Maturity in the Christian life, by the way, is attainable, in case you're wondering. It doesn't mean that we've arrived no more than a young man who reaches adulthood has become all wise. First responders are first responders. Yes, whether they've been there for years or just starting out on the first day. But we do recognize the difference between rookies and veterans, right? And for good reason. There is a maturity level that we can reach where we are able to function on our own as Christians and help others. The Greek word for mature in our context is perfect. It's the Greek word for perfect. It also has the idea of complete. The idea of Christian maturity is that is not that you have stopped growing, 
but that you reach a certain level of growth in the faith where you're able and proficient in handling life in a godly way and in helping others to do the same. Paul told Titus to instruct the mature men in the faith, to train the immature in the faith. And the same for mature women. They were to instruct the immature women in the faith. Parents are to raise children by training them. Elders must be skillful and competent to teach the Word of God to others and help them grow in godliness. Part of maturity recognizes that it is never a good idea to remain stagnant in a particular level of growth. It's not something that we would want for our children, either physically or mentally, on their way to adulthood. Sadly, though, it is often the case that many Christians settle in a particular level of maturity. They like where they're at. It's comfortable. The the thinking is that the less they know, then the less they're accountable for, which is, of course, not true. God still holds us accountable for our sin, even if we do it out of ignorance. Ignorance is never a safe haven, beloved, when it comes to the faith. I've known plenty of believers at this level. They don't like to be challenged in their thinking or, or have to think too hard about a biblical concept or or put in situations where obeying God would cause them much trouble. They don't like change. And many times they want to remain blissfully ignorant or enjoy a level of faith that they've, that they've been stuck in ever since they've reached it years ago. In, in a time when the faith was, say, new to them. It's like having a morbid sense of the past, wishing that you could go back to a, a simpler time and place when You had little responsibility, and others took care of the big decisions. They don't want to experience any growing pains. Keep it simple. I like my life just the way it is. Thank you very much. But this is not the mentality of the champions of faith. The Apostle Paul said, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Listen to Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. So Christians mature by practicing their faith. They also mature by training their senses. Training their senses. When we talk about senses, we typically mean one of three things. Either we mean the ability of our physical bodies to detect external external stimuli. So we interpret our physical surroundings by a sense of smell and taste and touch and hearing and sight. Or senses could also refer to our feelings in the way that we arrive at certain conclusions intuitively. She had a good sense of timing is the idea. Or sense could also mean sane and realistic attitudes towards situations and problems. Bill had a good sense to say no to drugs. And that last category of meaning fits our text the best. It refers to the faculties of our mind and our ability to make moral judgments. Do you make sensible biblical decisions? Are you smart theologically, smart about how to live by biblical doctrine? Are the faculties of your mind tuned to God's word so that that you know which part to run to to, for answers and to make decisions? 
Practice and training. One more. Christians mature as they, uh, as they practice discernment. They have discernment. They distinguish between good and evil, it says. Are you good at discriminating between what is morally good and morally evil in a culture such as ours that constantly redefines what morally good and morally evil is? The Bible tells us in absolute terms the difference, what the difference is between morality and immorality, but the world, of course, turns those on their head. So what the Bible calls morally good, our American society calls morally bad, and vice versa. Christians who have a good working knowledge of the Bible have become skilled in using it, and they act in a way that will please Christ. Now, we come then, having said that, to the writer's conclusion, and he concludes in the most logical way with this admonition, press on. Press on to maturity. The word press on translates an old Greek word that the ancient Greeks used to describe a boat that was borne along by the wind, and later figuratively for students who are borne along to the next level of maturity. We get to the New Testament, we find that this Greek word is, has pretty much the same meaning. It describes the force of the wind that pushed the Apostle Paul's boat um, uh, in, in Acts 27. It also describes the spirit, which in Greek, spirit is the same word for wind, that moved the apostles to speak boldly on the day of Pentecost. And it is used figuratively here in our text. More literal translation uh, would be, let us be born along to the next level of our moral and spiritual progress. This is the meaning in chapter 6, verse 1. Now, if that's you, and you're serious about growing in Christ, then you need to move on from the elementary teachings about Christ to more advanced aspects of the faith. You might be wondering, well, what is elementary? Uh, it's those foundational truths that every Christian should become familiar with as soon as possible after conversion, according to verses 1 and 2. It is certainly the gospel. He says, of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, verse 1. There's also the topic of baptism, the phrase about washings. That occurs later in chapter 9, verse 10, to, to refer to Jewish ceremonial washings, but here it's more likely a reference to Christian baptism, since this letter uh, is addressed to the church and the writer is talking about foundational truths. It's plural because he's most likely referring to instruction about baptisms in the church. There's also the laying on of hands, he says. That's a symbolic act that can mean a number of things in the New Testament. It was symbolic for the Holy Spirit's presence in healing, Acts 9, for blessing, Mark 10. It also had, a, had long been a, a form of identification. So elders of a church would place their hands on new members that were being inducted to the church or into church membership, or those who were entering full-time ministry like other elders. Now, we cannot be sure which of these the writers had in mind, but they're all really elementary. And the last one is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That's in verse 2, which I think is self-explanatory. These concepts were not 
uh, new to Judaism. They were taught, uh, they taught resurrection of the dead, and they taught a final judgment at the end of time. The New Testament simply develops, develops them further in apostolic teaching. So the writer indicates that his audience learned these foundation truths of the faith and no doubt were once excited enough about them actually to display an aggressive witness to the world, as in the case with most new converts. But you need to understand that an elementary knowledge of God's truth is not enough to keep Christians zealous. They need to to mature by the practice of Bible study and application. These Jewish Christians apparently never did. They got stuck at the starting point. They never got out of the gate. And now many of them show signs of drifting and apostasy. Well, the call to press on is just as weighty today as it ever was, in some cases more so. And we need to do this with God's help. The writer brings this section to a close with, the word of, with a word of encouragement. This we will do if God permits, he says in verse 3. It's really his way of saying, we're going to talk about the deeper things of doctrine, and we are going to mature because it's God's will for us to do so. And we will be born along in maturity by depending upon our Lord. Dependence upon God is not a mystical or abstract thing. It's rather a concrete thing. We rely on him to achieve his ends in our own lives by doing simply what he says. There's no mystery there. And it can be measured by doing what it says. His word is his strength. And we experience how powerful it is in our lives and in the life of our church when we obey him. In this case of maturing It should be obvious. I want to say then, be proactive about maturing. Be proactive. Keep up with your spiritual disciplines. Know your Bible and know how to use it in everyday situations. And if you're not sure, then ask us. Do that and you'll never forget God's sustaining principles for life. Practice your Bible study habits and apply God's truth. Keep your senses sharp for discerning good from evil. Also, I would say, ever increase in your understanding of deeper theological truths. There are no, there are no milk doctrines and meat doctrines in the Bible. There, there are no such things. But rather, there is a milk level and a meat level of understanding of all doctrines. An elementary understanding of Christ's death is that he died in your place to pay the penalty for your sin that God demanded. That's easy enough. A child could understand that. A meteor aspect of Christ's death is limited atonement. And as the writer will go on to discuss, the advantages of Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood. So we'll get to that later. Finally, trust God and the word that he has left you in this whole process. Trust God. Trust his word. Father, we are so grateful.